Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a surgeon and a radiation oncologist share how they team up to treat breast cancer together. Being able to visualize the cavity in the operating room uh, allows us more precise radiation delivery, so less chance of missing your target, and uh, hopefully it'll lead to less recurrences, less toxicities. An expert in genetics tells us what we need to know about genetic home testing kits. They might find out from us that when we investigate their personal and family history, we have a completely different approach we would have offered if we had been consulted up front. And we'll hear from a registered dietitian nutritionist about why fiber is such an important part of our diet. The soluble fiber, definitely a benefit. Insoluble is the type of fiber that is more related to bowel movements, GI function. All that in a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll discuss the prevalence of home genetic testing kits with a medical genetics expert from Upstate. Then we'll talk about fiber and the important role it plays in our diet. But first, how a surgeon and radiation oncologist team up to treat breast cancer together. There's a relatively new way of delivering radiation therapy in tandem with cancer surgery. It's called intraoperative radiation therapy, or IORT, and here to explain how it works is surgeon Lisa Lai and radiation oncologist Anna Shapiro. Welcome to you both. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Let's start with an explanation of what this therapy is. It stands for intraoperative radiation therapy. Does that mean it's radiation given during the operation? Yes. Dr. Lai? um, This is a treatment for women with early stage breast cancer and small tumors. So they are um, planning for lumpectomy. So they come and have the surgery to remove the tumor. And then after the surgery is complete, a balloon is placed inside the tumor bed. And a focused radiation dose is delivered right to that site. Inside the balloon? Yep, right into where the tumor used to lie in the breast. Okay. Then we remove that balloon, um, close up the cavity, complete the surgery, and um, the patient has completed both their surgery and their radiation for breast cancer all in one day. Wow. And does that eliminate the need, Dr. Shapiro, to have radiation afterward? That's exactly right, Amber. Um, This treatment really represents evolution in our thinking and um, technological advances in radiation. You know, we went from mastectomy to breast conserving treatment, and we've been doing breast conserving treatment, which is lumpectomy followed by whole breast radiation over the last 20 plus years. We recently, in the last 10 years, have moved to a shorter course of whole breast radiation, which is a three-week course. More recently, we really started to focus just on the lumpectomy cavity. This is really based on the observation that what we're trying to do is kill microscopic disease that's left after surgery, and the area that's most likely to harbor that disease is really immediately 
around right, the lumbectomy the cavity in the tumor bed. So we're able to do that by placing the balloon and then internal radiation source directly inside the balloon. So what it does really is it minimizes uh, surrounding normal tissues from radiation exposure. So when we're talking about left-sided breast cancer, heart, lung, underneath we have a rib um, that we're trying to minimize the radiation exposure to. It allows us to do that. So um, this is the reason why we're able to deliver a single dose of radiation because we're so precise. And uh, I think patients will greatly benefit from that. I was going to ask Dr. Shapiro from the radiation mm -hmm. oncologist's point of view, mm -hmm. what's the benefit of this procedure? Is it just less it's risk really, to the surrounding tissue? That's right. It's really um, improved targeting. So less risk to surrounding tissues, which in the long run will lead to less radiation toxicity, less side effects. And really being able to visualize the cavity in the operating room um, allows us more precise radiation delivery. So less chance of missing your target and uh, you know, hopefully it will lead to less recurrences, less toxicities. Neat. Um, and Dr. Lai, is there anything you'd like to add from sort of the surgeon's point of view about the benefit of doing things this way? You know, certainly we have all the benefits in terms of the clinical aspects, treating the cancer. This is certainly a very good and safe treatment for early stage breast cancer. Um, but also we must consider the um, patient factors and convenience factors. So, you know, breast cancer never strikes at a, a good time in life. We're busy people, and we have more important things to do. So this kind of um, condenses the treatment. Um, when a patient would ordinarily have a lumpectomy, spend a few weeks recovering, and then go on to have somewhere between three to six weeks of radiation, you know, in an outpatient center, traveling there Monday through Friday. Um, now we're able to complete both the surgery and radiation in one day so patients get back to their normal lives much quicker. And, you know, I think it's also um, important for patients who live far away. This is improving access to health care. Um, so, you know, as the way we have the program set up currently, we are the first place to offer this in central New York. Um, the other nearby centers are all in New York City. So um, this is an opportunity for a patient who's potentially able to travel to come for one day and to complete the treatment. Um, you know, they may not live close to a radiation center, so if they had to go you know, for a couple of weeks, um, that would be a major inconvenience and burden sure. on them and their family. So um, yeah. it certainly makes treatment easier for patients. Now, you've said that it's for early stage breast cancer, so that means breast cancer that hasn't spread, right? So right. Um, beyond that, um, how do you decide which patients are eligible for this type of procedure? As long as they have an early stage, does that mean anyone would be a candidate? Um, we certainly evaluate everyone on an individual basis. So any new patient coming to our cancer center begins um, at our multidisciplinary clinic. That means we meet as a tumor board prior to the visit. So all of the doctors and staff involved in their care meet ahead of time to review their diagnosis, review their pathology, all of their imaging, 
and we make a list of the treatment options. Then we meet with the patients and their families who are there. Um, each doctor meets with them one by one to present to them the options and treatment recommendations. Um, so uh, consideration for IORT would follow the similar process of uh, meeting with us and having a consultation and finding out what is the best treatment option for you. Are there some women who get diagnosed with an early stage breast cancer who don't need radiation therapy? That's a very Dr. good Shepard. question. Um, certainly, you know, we look at all the factors and each treatment plan is individualized. Um, in the past, many different things have been looked at in uh, clinical trials, including patient age. Um, we don't strictly go by patient's age. We look at, you know, their comorbidities, what their priorities are, um, and really in try to individualize each patient's treatment plan. So if we have an elderly woman, woman who has other comorbidities, she may be able to avoid radiation altogether. Uh, someone who has very favorable disease biology, um, an elderly could avoid radiation altogether. So we really try to customize. Um, there's no one-size-fits-all answer here, and I think that's a benefit of being seen by a treatment team where we can really look at all patient factors and uh, really patient leaves with a comprehensive plan moving forward. And just to, um, comorbidity means like other health issues uh, other or Other health diseases. issues, you know, if someone has diabetes or heart problems, you know, if, you know, a woman has other priorities and may not value, you know, preserving a breast and would prefer to have a bigger surgery like a mastectomy, you know, all that's those still issues. An alternative, that's, maybe. that's still an alternative, although that's become a lot less common these days. Um, so we, you know, we look at all the patient factors and we have a lengthy discussion when we first meet. Well, can we talk about are there risks or reasons um, that a person might not want to have it done this way? Are there things to be aware of? I think the thing to consider is that it's one of the newer treatments. So while the clinical trials and research that has been done um, demonstrates that it's safe, we don't have um, as long of a, a follow-up term. You know, the patients have not been followed for 20 or 30 years as they have been for other means of treatment. So um, I think the key is that in offering the treatment, we're making a careful decision in patient selection and deciding who's eligible. And the patient is also um, agreeable to having a treatment that's a little bit newer. Okay, great. Well, I've got some more questions for you, but let me remind listeners, uh, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with surgeon Lisa Lai and radiation oncologist Anna Shapiro about intraoperative radiation therapy for breast cancer. Um, I wanted to see if I can get you to walk me through sort of the process for this, like the day of the procedure. Once you've um, selected a patient and she's ready for this, um, does she come in that morning and go home that night, or how does it work? Mm -hmm. So um, she would come in, you know, in the morning, and um, sometimes uh, procedures are needed by the radiologist first. So if it's a tiny tumor that we cannot feel on exam, that may need to be localized by the radiologist. Um, there may also be a procedure to identify a lymph node under the arm that we need to check 
um, to see if the cancer has spread. So that's all done before the operating room. And are those imaging scans, Dr. Shapiro, or how? Yes, they're imaging scans and sometimes um, small interventional procedures by the radiologist. Okay, all right. Then she would meet with the entire team, um, the surgeon, the radiation oncologist, the anesthesiologist, the nurses, and other staff who are participating in the procedure. We would go back to the operating room. The patient would be under anesthesia, so fully asleep. And um, we would check uh, the lymph node. Um, So a lymph node or two would be removed, checked by the pathologist. We would make sure that the cancer has not spread there. And then we would remove the tumor. And insert. You said, and let me just interrupt. You said tumor, but could it be more than one tumor that you're working on, or is it typically one? Okay. No, this would just be for one tumor. Okay. And um, so once that tumor is out, we would then put a balloon into the empty space. Then the radiation oncologist would come, connect that to a machine which delivers the dose. And the treatment would take around 10 minutes. After that, we would withdraw the balloon and completely close up the empty space, close the skin with sutures that are under the, sorry, stitches under the skin that are completely dissolvable. And um, the patient awakes from anesthesia, goes to recovery for about an hour, and then gets to go home. So this is, um, the patient is is open, the the wound is open when you're applying the radiator or the balloon. So you're actually physically setting the balloon in there. Right where okay. the tumor was. Okay. Yeah. And that allows the dose to be given right to that okay. spot. So both of you are at the patient's bedside, mm-hmm. wor- I mean, working together um, in the OR for this procedure. That's correct. And that's one of the benefits of um, this procedure is that you can really visualize what your target is. Now, Dr. Shapiro, are there side effects from getting such a concentrated dose of radiation all at once? There could be some minor side effects. Um, They're very similar to what we normally would see with external beam radiation, but to a more limited area. So the main side effects we would expect would be some redness on the skin surface. Um, Sometimes you can get um, slightly pronounced scarring in the surgical cavity, but that's pretty much the extent of uh, what was described in the clinical trials. Um, Overall, patients have expressed a very um, excellent uh, cosmesis. Over 90% of patients in the clinical trial were very happy with their cosmetic outcome. Okay, great. And then it doesn't sound like the recovery is much different um, than just just surgery alone, right? Exactly. You go home that evening and mm-hmm. recover. Mm-hmm. Now, um, let me ask you this, Dr. Lai. Does chemotherapy fit into this still um, sometimes? Sometimes, yes. Um, so the surgery and the radiation are the local treatments of the breast. Um, but the decision for chemotherapy is made um, when we have um, evidence that there's higher risk of recurrence, and we need something systemic for treatment. To, so to travel from your head to your toes, basically, treating any loose cancer cells that may be there. So while many of these patients are those with early stage breast cancer, favorable breast cancers, and they may not need chemotherapy, there are some who will still need chemotherapy after this procedure. Okay, and then um, endocrine therapy or hormone therapy, that might be part of a treatment plan as well? 
afterward, though. Yep. Along the same lines for the chemotherapy. Yeah. In addition to this intraoperative option, I know there's a range of other options for radiation therapy. How do you decide which is best for an individual patient? It's really tailored to each individual. The tumor, their priorities, um, what the work, family, travel situation may be, really trying to make it less intrusive, um, make, help them get through the treatment in the best possible way, you know, less interruption to their work schedule, to their family obligations. Okay. Well, I appreciate you explaining all of this. Yeah, thank, thank you for, you having, for having us. us. Um, my guests have been surgeon Dr. Lisa Lai and radiation oncologist Dr. Anna Shapiro. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, what to consider before you buy a genetic home test kit. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. These days, a person can purchase a genetic test that can be done in their home to find out, for instance, whether they carry a gene that causes breast cancer. Science has advanced so that this information is easily gleaned from a sample of saliva for a few hundred dollars. Well, here to help make sense of this new genetics marketplace is Upstate's Director of Medical Genetics, Dr. Robert LaBelle. He's a professor with appointments in pediatrics, medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, pathology, and ethics. And today he's going to talk about genetic home testing kits. Welcome, Dr. LaBelle. Thank you. Some of the tests that are on the market are for genealogy, and some of them are for medical uses. Um, Correct. What's the difference? Is it the same test? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, so these things keep changing and evolving, and I should say that I'm, I'm not keeping up with the specifics of, of the industry. It's moving but fast. <laughs> it is. It's moving fast. And from the point of view of a clinician uh, in, uh, with genetics as a specialty, it's moving in the wrong direction, but that's, we'll come back to that. So the difference is uh, precisely what you said, namely, sometimes what they're looking for is markers that will tell you something about where your deep ancestry came from. It won't tell you the name of your great-grandfather, but it will tell you whether your great-great-great-greats came from, say, Northern Africa or Eastern Europe or Southeast Asia uh, because we all have innumerable markers and some of those markers are very common in certain parts of the world and very uncommon in other parts so that they're able to, to state with some statistical clarity uh, where those markers would have come from. So if you really need, if, if, if you've always said that you are of mixed European ancestry, German, Swedish, Czech, Hungarian, and you really want to know in detail whether you have, say, 3% of your genome from East Asia, which you might because the Hungarian part might have descended from Genghis Khan, well, you can find out. Right. What good that is? is up to you to figure out. So it's a novelty, sort of. Uh, yes, I find it of 
no clinical utility at all. <laughs> Although there was a case um, recently in, I think it was California, where um, detectives used a genealogy testing to trace and find a serial killer. Correct. Through family members or something. So most of us know all of our first cousins by name. Many of us know a lot of our second cousins by name. Few of us are in touch with many of our third cousins. And our fourth cousins are usually completely out of sight. I happen to be socially connected with an 11th cousin once removed who lives nearby here. We go to the same church. <laughs> but that's because French Canadians know a lot about our ancestry. As it happens, because we share some of the genetic material with our third cousins, if you know my genome, you might be able to compare it with the genomes of other people who have put their samples into the database, and you might be able to triangulate to somebody of interest. Hmm. And so those three news stories in the last month or so uh, all are stories about the use of these databases to triangulate to somebody that is highly suspected of, of being a, a bad actor. Interesting. And is a cousin to somebody who sent their sample in voluntarily. Wow. We're all so connected, it seems like. Mm -hmm. um, well, all of these tests ask for a saliva sample. Is that as good as a blood sample for this sort of testing? It is when it is. I mean, the sample that's needed for a test is defined by the people who are doing the test and by the standards that they have established for how their laboratory operates and, and where they get statistical probabilities of accurate answers. It's just whenever I've gone to a doctor's office or whatever, it's a blood sample they take to do any testing, and now these home test kits are saying a saliva sample will give me you know, some window into my medical situation. They will, but the degree to which the, your saliva might be con contaminated by other genomes besides your own, like all the various bacteria and fungi that are living in our mouths, the extent to which they contaminate the sample may or may not matter. Ah. So that's why I say it depends on the protocols and standards of the laboratory. And if they know how to subtract out the noise from those other genomes satisfactorily mm. so that they can believe that the report they're giving you is accurate, then they can, we presume. Okay. Well, you alluded to uh, this proliferation of you know, home genetic testing as kind of moving in the wrong direction as to what you think. But are there benefits to direct-to-consumer genetic tests? Do you see any benefits? Well, sure, there are. Um, they can uncover specific risks and risk factors. Uh, now we're talking about the other kind, right? Oh, Not yes, the we've moved from gene genealogy. We're, we've moved right. to the medical testing. But the kind that can tell me whether I have a factor that's going to increase or even decrease my risk for certain genetic disorders, uh, that can be very useful information in the right hands. The reason I believe that, that this whole program is going in the wrong direction is that it is not putting it in the hands of people with expertise who have a fiduciary responsibility to the person whose information it is to give them thorough, accurate, actionable information. They just give you the results. Correct. 
So you referenced the, uh, a gene associated with breast cancer. There are many genes associated with breast cancer. A couple of different mutations in the most famous of those genes are available in these panels. So if you come from a cancer family with a lot of breast cancer, you might be interested in your status. If you use this method to investigate your status and the report is that they do not find a breast cancer factor, you may think that you have investigated the question and have your answer. If you talked with a genetic counselor, board-certified genetic counselor about this, he or she looking over your pedigree might tell you that there are actually 20 different genes that could be of interest in regard to your family's presentation. You were tested for two different things in one gene. You weren't tested for thousands of things in dozens of genes. Wow. The way the board-certified counselor can direct your attention if you tell him, your whole story. So if, if someone has test results from one of these uh, online or whatever s sites that they uh, go to, are there genetic counselors? Could they make an appointment to come and see someone like yourself Yes. to go over all of this? Yes. Okay. But that's obviously an additional but, expense. And, right. Right. Um, and they might find out from us that when we investigate their personal and family history, we have a completely different approach we would have offered if we had been consulted up front. So where it's useful is where it, when it has positive results. So sticking with the breast cancer genetics example, if a change in, the breast, in this gene is found, then the person is flagged at increased risk for breast cancer and perhaps, by the way, other tumors besides breast, like ovarian and pancreas. And, by the way, the pancreas risk is for both males and females. Men are not at risk for ovarian cancer ever, right? right? But they are at risk for breast cancer if they come from such a family. family. And, after all, pancreatic is gender neutral. Okay. So once such a factor has been found, then they could talk to somebody with expertise about exactly how to approach this knowledge and how to use this knowledge to minimize their long-term risks. But if it's negative, mm -hmm. they may say, oh, well, we've settled that, when they really haven't. Are primary care providers um, equipped to have patients coming in with a printout of their genetic no. test? No. No. They're flummoxed usually by this and don't have the time. Uh, I was once in a forum in which... Uh, a highly placed executive in one of these companies was part of the forum. I won't say who or which. But this person said, uh, I don't understand why you clinical geneticists are unhappy with what we're doing. We're giving you more data. And my response to that was, but it's not more data that we need. It's more understanding. We have mountains of data. We need more understanding and more wisdom. And you're not giving us those. Um, Okay. Years have gone by since that conversation, and it's still true. There's still more data, and we still yeah, need we more understanding. Yeah, we have even bigger piles of data now. <laughs> well, um, d health insurers don't generally pay for these tests, do they? Or no. Have you heard of any? No? No, not the over-the-counter uh, direct-to-consumer consu ones. How would you advise someone uh, to make an educated decision about which company to use for genetic testing if they're... If they're interested in doing this, how do they pick the right company? I don't know. 
Okay. You know, because if you have breast cancer running in your family, you want to get tested for all the genes that we know about, not just BRCA, not just the one. Well, you want to get tested for the gene or panel of genes that make sense to your specific story. And you're going to need the help of somebody with expertise in genetics to figure out which that is. It gets more complicated, too. Some insurers won't pay for testing at certain labs, but they will for other labs. Uh And so knowing where to turn for the right panel of genes at a laboratory that will be covered by your insurance gets to be complicated, and that's the sort of thing that genetic counselors know how to do. So that really a patient that has a family history that's significant should really come to a genetic counselor to find out what what to do and what would make sense to be tested for. Right, so. that would be the prudent thing to do. Well, the, nevertheless, these home testing things are proliferating and there's a lot of use. Um, are, is there any way for consumers to know that their information is going to be kept private? Actually, that's, I'm glad you asked that question because the answer is has to be a flat no since the consent form usually has a box that has to be checked that says that they're giving permission to compare their findings to other people's findings. Mm. Uh, That is, after all, the only possible way to be successful with the genealogical approach when the question has to do with, you know, what's my deep genetic background? It's impossible to answer that question without comparing my information to databases of other people's information. So I can't possibly send my sample in without checking that box. And once I've checked that box, I've given permission to compare mine to others, which is how third cousins of people accused of criminal offenses have been brought in as accessories to finding the person of interest or even momentarily being suspect themselves. Right. At least one of those cases, the story was that somebody was thought to be a possible suspect. And then they looked further and excluded that person. Well, some people may say, well, I got nothing to hide. But doesn't, I mean, if information got out about uh, that you have a high likelihood of breast cancer or whatever, um, insurance companies might not want to insure you. Is that correct? Well, insurance companies are under obligation to accept and insure people with pre-existing conditions under current law. Right, and that uh, may change. And Yes, laws are always subject to change. And that's uh, health insurance, but there's other disability, long-term care. Life. Life. All of those have been exempted. The, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act specifically exempts all those other insurers uh, from the use of genetic information. It was essential that they do that because if, if I could go for a million-dollar life insurance policy the week after I learn that I'm at high risk of dying in the next 10 years, uh, that would ruin the uh, life insurance industry, which I know might make some people snicker, but it would ruin the industry and, and make life insurance unattainable for anybody. Sure. Yeah, makes sense. Well, let me ask you this. Um, can any of these genetic testing kits, um, can they tell me if I'm likely to develop Alzheimer's disease or cancer or 
some other disease. Can that information come back to me? Well, they can identify factors that tell you that your risk is higher than you would think uh, as just a member of the general population. They might be able to say that your risk for Alzheimer's is twice or five times the general risk. And if so, if the general risk is, well, let's say 2% and your risk is five times that, then your risk is 10%. It's not going to tell you that you are going to develop it. It's going to say your risk is higher. So if it tells me my risk for developing Alzheimer's is higher, what, what then? What do I do with that? Well, with Alzheimer's, I don't know that there are any particular strategies other than that early detection allows for certain medicines to be applied. So there are medications that uh, now slow the progress, and they're best used early in the process. So having a warning allows me to, uh, to talk to my physician about how we watch for early signs. So that can be useful. Yes, right. Okay. Um, if a parent does a genetic test, do the results offer any sort of information that would benefit that, that person's children? Because Well, any factor that I have, there's a 50% chance that I will pass it to each of my children, no matter what the factor is, whether the trivial, mm-hmm. you know, unusually shaped earlobe or the, or the serious thing like a uh, risk for early onset Alzheimer's. Uh, whatever I've got, there's a 50-50 chance that it goes to each of my children, good or bad. So then, yes, uh, knowing what I've got has a bearing on my children because they have 50% chance of having it too. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the information. My guest has been genetics expert Dr. Robert LaBelle. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, dietary fiber. Are you eating enough? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You may have heard that fiber is an important component of your diet. Here to explain why and to help us learn how to eat the right kinds and amounts of fiber is registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin from the Upstate Jocelyn Diabetes Center. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having Appreciate me. It. So let's begin with a definition of fiber. Okay, so fiber, the fiber that I'm talking about is the dietary carbohydrate found in plant foods, and that's an important thing in terms of your plant-based foods. Unlike other carbohydrates, it can't be readily digested, and it passes through your GI system, okay, and basically out of your body. So we're talking about the fiber that's in your plant-based foods, which Fru- is an Fruits and vegetables, Fruits, both? vegetables, dried peas and beans, those okay. kinds. Um, and is this uh, what we also heard called roughage? Yes, roughage, bulk. It used to be called a long time ago. People used to say, I need more bulk in my diet. Basically, they were talking fiber. 
Okay. And uh, there's different types of fiber, right? Yes. So fiber, the two, the, the way it makes it up is there's one is soluble fiber. Okay. And basically what that is, it does, it's a type of fiber. It dissolves in water to form like a gel. And then that's broken down in your large intestine. The other one is insoluble, meaning it doesn't dissolve in water. And that's the one that passes through your GI system. And as, as they say, relatively intact, meaning that it it just moves through your GI system. So each fiber type of fiber has a different benefit to it. So can you give me some examples of um, some foods that are soluble and some foods that are insoluble? Okay. Some of the soluble are things like your dried peas and beans, your fruits, oats, nuts, seeds, vegetables. You're going to see that they're in both groups sometimes too because then insoluble types, whole wheat flour, wheat bran, nuts again, whole grains, and vegetables. So some of them have both insoluble and insoluble. They all have a little blend. Some might have more soluble versus more insoluble. So are there just are there different vegetables that these vegetables are soluble and these are insoluble? No, it's more like they all have good they have fiber and they that have are... components that. Okay. And that's where, you know, you don't really want to get into like, am I eating this much insoluble versus this much soluble? You really want to look at, am I getting some fiber in my diet? How much fiber am I getting in my diet? And I think that's that's the, one of the take-home messages I want for people. You just really want to look at, am I getting more fiber in my diet? Don't get caught up in insoluble versus soluble. Don't get caught up in what type and how, you know, which food it's coming from. Really look at plant-based because that's where you look at it. When we look at all things, we're talking about whole wheat. We're talking about vegetables. We're talking about nuts, seeds, very good fiber things. So all, all fiber is basically good. If that's an important component. Try to get more fiber in your diet because typically, as Americans, we don't get enough. Because a lot of times when we look at a food label, we're trying to make sure there's not too much, um, whatever, sodium or sugar or whatever. Mm -hmm. But on the fiber, on the food label, you, you want as much as you can. Yes, definitely. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about what fiber does for our bodies. Okay. So the soluble type, all right, is the one that may help lower your blood cholesterol. Because the idea is it can slow your digestion rates, slow the rate at which the nutrients are absorbed, and it might also help control blood glucose levels. All right, as you, I'm saying may, because again, lots of studies, different things, we can't come out and say, yes, this does it, but soluble fiber, when you think about what does fiber do, it helps fill you up, all right? It can also aid in terms of making you feel more full and satisfied. It's the difference between eating an apple with the skin on it and crunching versus applesauce. Skin's gone, everything's broken down in terms of it. So the soluble fiber, definitely a, ben a benefit. Insoluble is the type of fiber that is more related to bowel movements, GI function. It's basically going through your system, helping your system. Um, it can possibly improve blood sugar control or cholesterol levels, but the insoluble is one we look more towards bowel regularity. Okay, so um, benefits from from both. Both. Mm -hmm. Now, when it struck me when you mentioned um, it, it slows the digestion so that nutrition is better absorbed by the body. Mm -hmm. Does it is it important to eat fiber with other nutritious foods to help boost your body's ability to take the nutrition out of the foods? Um, I don't know. I probably I just think it's important just to look at am I getting overall am I getting good nutrition? So. That's a great point. I don't want people just to say, well, I'm just eating all fiber because you don't want to just get all fiber. You want to get some good vitamin A, some good vitamin C, some you know other types of nutrients in there. So I think it's, again, looking at the whole picture. I think okay. that's an important key. What about are there supplements that can achieve this if you have yeah. trouble? 
There are supplements. Um, again, as a dietitian, I'm always going to lean towards food first in terms of it. And my question would be, why would you want to take a pill when you can eat delicious food? Um, so look at what you're doing. Is there very easy ways of getting fiber in your diet? I think all too often we, we just want to take that pill. We want to take the pill for the vitamins. We want to take the pill for this. We want to do this. Look towards your plant base. We have a great variety in our, in, in our area, local food markets, you know, everything in terms of our market. So to me, it's look towards your food first. If you have to go to a supplement, I think you need to check with your doctor, your, your health care provider. Why do you think you need supplements? Do you, do you have a GI problem? Are you having problems with constipation? Have you tried fiber in your diet? Um, and maybe it hasn't worked. But look first. Look towards your food first, I think. Okay. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Maureen Franklin. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist. Uh, she's here from the Upstate Jocelyn Diabetes Center. So let's talk about the recommended amounts of fiber for, I'm assuming maybe they're different for men, women, children. They are, and they're different depending on the age group. So men, 50 or younger, the recommended amount is 38 grams. For women, 50 or younger, it's 25 grams. And that's per day? That's per day. People typically, the estimate is probably get around 15 grams. So you can see we're pretty, men definitely can be pretty low in terms of their typical intake. And less, women, less than half of yeah, what's recommended. Yeah. Huh. So, I mean, that's the thing in terms of just basically looking at what am I doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, for men 51 or older, it's 30 grams as a recommendation. And for women 51 or older, it's 21 grams. Uh, do those carry down to children as well? Um, you know, I'm not sure of the children in terms of it. Um, but, again, with kids, we're it's, just trying to get more fruits and vegetables into them. And that's part of it that's, is yep. the fiber. Okay. So if you're someone who is realizing they are not getting enough fiber, they're getting less than half of what is recommended, mm -hmm. if they suddenly started eating and getting the full amount, what would they see different in they their They could see some issues in terms of if you're not, if you're doing fiber too fast, the recommendations are gradually introduce it into your system very slowly so your body gets used to it. Make sure you have enough fluids with it. Sometimes if you do too much fiber too fast, um, some people might experience nausea. Um, you might experience more complications uh, in terms of more constipation sometimes in terms of it. So the recommendation is give your body time to slowly get used to it and adjust to it and probably do it over like a, a good two-week period. You just don't want to like, oh, I've got, you know, whole wheat bread and a baked potato with skin and all that because then you're going to go, whoa, a little Slam bit too your much. Body. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's not maybe dangerous is too strong of a word, but it's not a good, good idea to have right. too much. It's better to always just slowly adjust and let your body adjust. And, and then get used to it. You, you mentioned um, plenty of water. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? The fluid intake. Because think of it in terms of the gel-like structure. So if you're not if you're not giving it enough water, it's like a sponge. It needs some water in terms of it to be able to pump up and move through your system. Okay. Where if there's not enough water, you're not giving it that that benefit that it needs. Well, let's talk about ways to boost fiber intake. Okay. Um, so I guess starting with breakfast. Breakfast. Uh, Steel-cut oats, uh, another good way in terms of increasing your fiber, uh, a more higher fiber or the new thing is looking at a new whole grain um, in terms of getting some more fiber, a better whole grain cereal is that time helping to boost it, adding um, a fruit, a fresh fruit if you can, not a juice, but um, adding something like wheat bran or oat bran if you're a yogurt person or even if you're a hot cereal person, um, just adding a little bit at a time, that can be an easy way. Now, yogurt um, 
I've seen yogurts that say they have fiber in them. Is that? Yep. That's actually another category that's um, what we call now, it's a functional fiber. So companies are adding different other fiber sources. So it's probably another topic for us to discuss, but that's something people to look into. Some people might have a, a reaction to it. I know if I use some of those types of foods with fiber, it upsets my GI system a little bit. So you kind of have so to try it. You kind of have to try it and see how your body's responding to it again. Uh, and again, go slowly with it. See what your response is in terms of uh, test it with something that you know that there's you have no no issues. Okay. Or if you, if like you mentioned, the fruit, you could add that into mm -hmm. your regular yogurt. Your regular and, yogurt. And you've yeah. got some fiber you, with it. You could add some, um, you know, granola if you wanted to. But again, look at granola in terms of, you know, are you getting a good amount of fiber? Is it more just sweet and carbohydrate type sources too? Okay. Um, lunchtime ideas? Lunchtime, you know, that we go back to the basic easy things. You know, can you add some carrot sticks, celery sticks, pepper strips, those kinds of things. Um, one of my favorite lunches is I take a pepper and I put tuna fish and I make like a pepper sandwich in terms of a great way of increasing your fiber in terms of cold, crunchy. I love it. Um, that's an easy way. Adding soups. Now it's getting a little colder. Can you do some vegetable soups that you've made yourself and increase more fiber through those kinds of things? Whole wheat wraps, whole wheat bread, trying to increase your fiber that way. Um, you mentioned the bread. There's a big variation in the amount of fiber in the different breads, there right? There sure is. Yep. So and again, checking your label for that. Am I getting, because just because it says a whole wheat grain or a whole grain bread, how much fiber? Am I, am I getting one gram versus three grams, or am I getting four grams in a whole wheat, which is an actual whole wheat flour bread? So how I mean how much fiber could you get in a slice of bread? Could I'd you say find probably typically three to four probably is okay. a good serving size. Yeah, but again, if you're you trying to add, if you're trying to get up to twenty five or thirty eight grams, that's, right. that's a lot of bread. Right, right. <laughs> okay. But fruits, you know, um, you know, like a, a an apple, a pear, probably anywhere from four to five grams of fiber. Easy way to add it. You know, could I like you said, could we add it in our yogurt? Could I add it in my cold cereal? Could I have it as a snack? Um, I think a great way. For like dinner is adding more lentils, dried peas or beans, uh, barley, one of my favorites. I think because I was doing this topic, I made a beef barley stew and then I made a quinoa um, chicken soup. And it was so easy. Instead of doing chicken noodle, I didn't do noodles. I did quinoa. I did white quinoa. And then I added chopped spinach to it. And so it has a similar texture to noodles? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So just instead of the noodles... Substituting. Substitute like a whole grain. I use farro in the winter. I love farro. Um, I think the quinoa, there's so many great varieties. That's another good way. We're so used to, you know, just throw some noodles. I mean, you can do whole wheat noodles, but quinoa, those kinds of things are another different take. And like a cup of barley has about six grams of fiber. So again, if you're having that and a nice filling, nice warm comfort food for you, but nutritious. Definitely. And um, you mentioned beans too. That's yes. a good source great source. You know, and I think we tend to think of those in a very small area. You know, we might put them in a taco once in a while, or we might do something and put them on a salad. But again, those are the same things. You can roast chickpeas. You can have those as a snack, great snack. You can put all kinds of herbs or spices if you want on them. You could put them in a stew. You could put them in a casserole, put them in your salad. Those are great ways. And what a great economical source. Well, in um, some cultures, beans are a mainstay. Mainstay. Of, mm -hmm. right, so. right. Right. 
Um, and then let's also talk about snacks. Is that an is that a way that you can add fiber? If oh, definitely. Again, the things such as you know doing the uh, snack peas, uh, um, the different types of dried peas and beans. Again, roasting them, getting more of the fruits, more of the vegetables, and looking at what what am I snacking on, and can I slowly make some changes in terms of that? I think again we're going more towards plant based. The good fruits and vegetables they're easy to grab. We have to have them around. We have to have them in our house and take with us to work if we're thinking of that as a snack. Popcorn, another great snack. Good grams of fiber in terms of it. Popcorn is popcorn, high fiber? Yep. It's what we put on popcorn <laughs> that could tend to make it offside of the, the nutrition part. But so you know, maybe popcorn's go, a great go thing. easy on the butter go and salt. Go easy on the butter and the salt. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Right. And then again, like you mentioned, the importance of um, drinking adequate water. Good water um, intake. Washing mm-hmm. everything down nicely. Right. Definitely. Can you give me some examples of how much fiber is in um, different fruits, say an apple or a pear? Sure. A large pear with the skin, important thing, making sure you don't peel that skin off, has about 7 grams of fiber. A cup of fresh raspberries has 8. A half of a medium avocado has approximately 5 grams. A half a cup of cooked black beans, about 7.5 grams. Three cups of air pop popcorn that we talked about has about 3.6 grams, and a cup of that cooked barley that I put in my soup has about 6 grams. Well, good information. I really appreciate you coming to talk about well, thanks this. Thanks for having me. Uh, this My guest has been Upstate Registered Dietitian Nutritionist Maureen Franklin. She's uh, at the Upstate Jocelyn Diabetes Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. I love when our poets inspire us with hope, not the fantasy kind, but the real, earthy, courageous kind. Here are two short portraits, the first by California poet Diane Blue Solis. It's called Lucky. He gives his dogs names like Hope and Lucky, 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 come here. He has a hound named Courage. Mornings he calls him long and loud for anyone who needs to hear. With courage and hope he goes down to the docks where his town dips off towards the sea. At a grill by the harbor he shares coffee and toast with anyone there between jobs, between homes, watching, waiting. Hope, hope, hoping. The second is by Skinny Atlas poet Mary Gardner, and it is called Untangling Dark. Darkness denies distraction, unsettles comfort and certainty, until, staring into the cold blackness of it, light returns, creeps to familiar things, lamp, stairpost, greens, and winterberries, a shuttered window's white sill gleaming, invitation to the night world, where the calendared moon reshapes itself to hold. And here, settled in an Afghan chair, I sense the slow untangling of worrisome things.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a prostate cancer update. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.